Welcome back to Culture in the Cross, where we look at relevant cultural topics through the lens of the cross to better understand what we should think, feel, and believe about the world around us. I'm Nick Clay, and today we have quite an interesting topic. Have you ever heard of biohacking? I hadn't, but I found that it's a science and tech-based practice sweeping through culture that may challenge ethics, creation, and the circle of life. In today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Tab Jervie from Regent University to discuss biohacking, but to an even greater extent to determine how this growing trend may change the way that even Christians view life itself. More on that when we return. When I first heard the term biohacking, images of sci-fi movies and TV shows came to mind, especially the cyborg of Star Trek. I was listening to NPR's 1A on my way to work and heard stories of people implanting microchips and digital storage devices into their bodies. I was instantly intrigued. When I got to the office, I sat down to do more research and realized that biohacking was a growing movement, especially among the Silicon Valley folk. To some, biohacking may be nothing more than a diet or drinking a cup of coffee to fight off the mid-afternoon energy crash, but ultimately, the goal of biohacking is to extend the human lifespan. For some scientists and doctors, that just means helping humans live healthier lives, increasing life expectancy by beating common diseases. But for others, like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs Serge Faget and Elon Musk, it means literally becoming cyborgs in order to live forever. An article from The Guardian reminds its readers that Musk has repeatedly argued that humans need to become cyborgs to survive the inevitable robot uprising. I know, it sounds like science fiction, but the article focuses more on Faget, who has spent over $200,000 on biohacking in order to become calmer, thinner, extroverted, healthier, and happier. Like Musk, Faget intends to live forever by merging with robots and becoming an ultra-human. Those are his words. His efforts include wearing $6,000 hearing aids that optimize his already perfect hearing, administering daily injections of somatropin, a hormone that promotes muscle growth, and taking a cocktail of 60 pills a day to optimize his insides. And while all of this seems very new age and like something written by Aldous Huxley, let me take you back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, as we look at a man by the name of John Harvey Kellogg. You undoubtedly recognize this name as John Harvey Kellogg was the brother of Will Keith Kellogg, who founded the Kellogg Company that now makes the cereal you had for breakfast this morning. While Will and John were both very inspired by the Seventh-day Adventist Church's dietary principles, John was the more extreme brother. John Harvey Kellogg was a medical doctor, nutritionist, inventor, health activist, eugenist, and businessman who became best known for directing the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. The San, as it was known then, was a health resort, think day spa meets hospital, that practiced health principles advocated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. As the director, Kellogg began implementing a therapy that changed the intestinal flora of a patient in order to treat most any disease. Now, it's about to get quite, uh, let's say, medical, so if you have a weak stomach for that sort of thing, you've been warned. Essentially, Kellogg believed that natural changes in one's intestinal flora, that is, the microbiome of your digestive tract, could be sped up by using enemas seeded with more favorable bacteria in order to treat disease. 
What I'm saying is Kellogg was changing the bacteria of his patients by replacing them with more favorable bacteria in order to eradicate illness. Kellogg was essentially biohacking his patients to optimize their digestive health. And this actually worked, and it still works. And it's actually used by some in the biohacking community to improve gut health. But at what point have we crossed a line? I mean, the bacteria in your body is almost as unique as your DNA. And as I continued to do research, I began to think that this extreme of biohacking was starting to sound unethical for the Christian. But then I stumbled into the community of scientists who view aging as a problem to be solved. And actually, this community is not a small one. In fact, I later learned that scientists in general are excited about the idea of improving the human's ability to live long lives. However, I was struck by this quote, 400 million people die every year of aging. That quote came from Liz Parrish, a biohacker and CEO of BioViva USA, which researches treatments to combat aging via gene therapy. I mean, isn't aging the default way to die? We all have to die at some point, right? And if you don't die of illness, injury, or murder, isn't all that's left old age? And then I heard a quote from Chip Walters, who is the author of a book titled Immortality, Inc., Renegade Science, Silicon Valley Billions, and the Quest to Live Forever. This is what he said. All civilizations are built to have people die at a certain point. If people can live 300, 400 years, it's going to change your personal relationships. It's going to change religion. It's going to change economics at a fundamental level. As I heard that quote from Chip Walters, I, I had two thoughts. The first is that these are likely people who are not believers in Christ. They do not know what happens after they die. The second thought I had was, I don't want my personal relationships to change. I don't want religion to change. I don't want economics to change fundamentally. I held on to these thoughts. I thought that this surely was the best way, the most biblical way for Christians to think, feel, and believe about biohacking. But then I had a conversation with Dr. Tab Jervy, and if I'm honest with you, it changed everything for me. So let's listen to that. Well, I am here with Dr. Tab Jervy. Uh, Dr. Jervy was a professor of mine in my undergrad program at Regent, but I would just like for her to take a few moments and just describe, because uh, I know she is more than just a professor. She's much more, but I'd like to give her some time just to describe and introduce herself and, and describe what it is she does in science and her background in research. Dr. Jervy? Good afternoon, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today, Pastor Clay. Uh, as you introduced me, my name is Tab Jervy. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of biology at Regent University. Uh, I have been a professor probably about 20 years or so, and uh, I love what I do. Uh, I am first uh, a believer in Christ. I'm a wife, a mom, and then I am a professor. <laughs> And so even though that's fourth on the list, it doesn't mean that it's not important to me. It's very important to me. And I think that's why I'm here today. Uh, I got my doctorate in biomedical sciences uh, from Eastern Virginia Medical School uh, in 2001. And I have done research in herpes viruses, specifically uh, the uh, human cytomegalovirus, and I simply studied the genes of viruses there. So my work mostly has been done in looking at the genomics of viruses. Mm. Uh, but that can be applied to many other things. 
Currently, I'm at Regent University. I've been there since 2016, and I teach biochemistry, nutrition, general biology uh, for majors. And uh, working with undergraduates is my delight uh, because to be able to turn on light bulbs, uh, both academically and in the science of research, uh, it's a privilege. And so uh, my recent interest has just become um, understanding that uh, with all this knowledge, we have to be able to apply it and to apply it to um, our everyday lives. And so that got me interested in nutrition uh, and genetics together. And uh, that's what I work with students with at Regent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. I remember my favorite part about taking a science class at Regent. I was a little weary at first, uh, not being very good at science, but I loved how at Regent, and especially in your class, uh, we always integrate faith and reason. We integrate, uh, you know, the science, but also what does the scripture say about that science? So that's what we do here on the podcast in Culture on the Cross. We look at culture, we look at what's going on in the world, and we look at it through the lens of the cross to better understand how we should think, feel, and believe about the world around us. So so today we're going to be talking about uh, this term called biohacking. I know it was new to me, and I think it was maybe the phrasing of it was new to you as well. Uh, but you have done some research, and I'm so thankful for that. But let's start with this. What are maybe some types of biohacking that many of us may be aware of, uh, but maybe not necessarily in, in those terms? You know, I, I listen to quite a few podcasts uh, myself. I have done a lot of reading uh, and to be perfectly honest, this was the first time that I had heard the term biohacking. Uh, but as I applied it to my own life, I uh, quickly understood that this is something that I have been doing and have encouraged others to do uh, for a long time. And so uh, I really thought of a very general um, example, and perhaps you think this is very non-scientific, uh, but if you've ever driven by or prepared to go to lunch at Chick-fil-A, you drive there and you quickly see that there are so many cars there hmm. that the lunch you thought you were going to get, <laughs> you end up passing it by and going somewhere else because everybody goes to Chick-fil-A. Now, that's not a scientific way to look at biohacking, but if you look at the trend over time, what you're really seeing is the movement toward healthier eating, hmm. uh, making the choice to go for chicken instead of a steak. Hmm. And so with our current state of looking at how people encounter disease, whether it's high blood pressure or um, high cholesterol, which are two very high on the list of chronic diseases today, uh, people choosing chicken over steak or chicken over a high fat food is really uh, the trend that's happening that we do all the time. So we're making those same kind of choices with supplements, deciding to, hey, I'm going to take a multivitamin instead of not, because maybe I'm not getting everything I need in my everyday diet. Uh, so that's not a, a very scientific example, but it's a very good one because I think everybody is thinking about health hmm. and making those small tweaks and choices toward better. 
Yeah. So what about um, drinking coffee? Would that be a type of maybe biohack, maybe not super healthy for you if you do it too much, but um, I think I remember from your class one time we talked about how drinking coffee blocks some certain receptors in your body. And so you feel more awake when really your body may not necessarily be so awake, but you've kind of, uh, you've kind of tweaked your body or if it was like a computer, you, you optimized, optimized your body to run a certain way. Sure. I have, um, my history is I used to drink about five cups of coffee a day Wow! in college, <laughs> in uh, graduate school. And so if you could ask a person, hey, where to go for coffee, I could tell you, I could tell you whether to go for a blonde or dark roast. Uh, and so that could be a form of uh, biohacking uh, in that, as you indicated, if you drink it modestly, uh, then there's some benefits of alertness. Hmm. Uh, there is a little bit of caffeine that provides you with what you need, but there are tannins that might have some benefits as well. Uh, and then at the same time, there are some chemicals in the processing of uh, coffee that could, if you drink it regularly enough, could cause some adverse effects over time. Uh, and so it depends on who you talk to. There, if it's a scientist who is studying coffee and loves coffee, then it would be a benefit to that person. Mm. If you're talking about somebody like me who has done the five cups of coffee a day <laughs> and have made the decision that, hey, that might not be the best, and maybe there are some healthier alternatives, yeah, then we could say you could biohack it in moderation. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. you know, there are definitely some more simple versions of, of biohacking, you know, eating healthy or exercising, choosing chicken over steak, um, drinking coffee in moderation. Those things are, are, they have benefits, they have health benefits, but what might also be some, some drawbacks of, and now we might be moving more into the more extreme types of biohacking, but what are maybe some, some drawbacks that we see just doing simple things with our body? What are maybe some examples you've come across that, that are negative, do negative effects on our body? Uh. Well, so remember that I said uh, I am pretty new to this, uh, but having looked at several different examples, um, the idea of biohacking is to go for optimal health, to go for the extra, to get the extra. And so when you're talking about biohacking, um, we're looking at how can I add something to my life so that my life is better? Um, and so some, uh, we know that there are lots of studies being done all over the world uh, with respect to biohacking. Most of the time we look at it as an individual just making tweaks and changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now we have this thing called a cell phone uh, that stays close to us at all times. Uh, and so we have moved from just the relationship we have with us in sleep or us in food to data and technology being used to calibrate uh, how we sleep, when we sleep, uh, the foods that are optimized, uh, increased protein, decreased carbohydrate. Uh, and chips being implanted into the body uh, to manually, actually, and technically uh, tweak.
tweak what we need in order to optimize our day, our our schedule, uh, and even our health is what people are doing these days. Mm. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned one of them, like uh, embedding pieces of technology in your body. I've I heard a story of someone who actually embedded like a storage device, like a, a thumb drive, in, into their leg so they could store. Uh, documents, I guess, digital documents, or um, I read an article about some tech CEO who took a cocktail of like 60 different pills each morning to try to optimize his body. When we move into that, I would say more extreme versions of, of biohacking, do we start to cross a line of, of Christian ethics? Do we do we start to become uh, weary as Christians of, of doing these sort of things to our bodies? I would say... Um I don't think we are crossing a line uh, with respect to the general term called biohacking. Uh, but when we take these extreme measures, I think even outside of looking at it from a Christian perspective, we have to ask ourselves, what are the complete uh, outcomes of making mm. a choice like this? Short term, Maybe nothing, but long-term, because these things are so new, we are not sure what the long-term effects might be. So in that way, uh, I would say, hey, we need to consider long-term and short-term effects. With respect to crossing the line ethically and even spiritually, um, I am reminded of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 that says, our body is a temple. Yeah. Uh, not to do with it what we want. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit, which ye have of God, and you're not your own. Mm -hmm. You were bought with a price. So we are to glorify God in it, and we have to ask ourselves when we make those choices, are we glorifying God? Uh, and that is to the individual. As much as we would like to legislate morality or say, do this and don't do this, the word of God is wonderful because it's pretty clear about the choices we make with our bodies and for what reason we should. And so, uh, yeah, some of these things are pretty extreme if it causes harm and has the potential to cause harm. We, we may want to think twice about it. And uh, if it will enhance us without hurting us or other people, then perhaps uh, it's okay. Okay. All right. So in, in my research, I came across a, a technology. I want to talk about this one for a little bit um, called mm -hmm. CRISPR uh, or CRISPR therapy, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. I'm hoping maybe you can explain it for us. But what does this technology do uh, to, to us? What, what can, how can we use this technology? Yeah, without getting too technical. Okay, that's perfect. Uh, I will, yes. <laughs> I will say um, the beauty of um, it is as we come across this technology um, and we make great uses for it uh, in the science field, in the medical field, in order to overcome disease, we would say, hey, this is great. Uh, this is a technology that we get out of a smaller organism. Uh, and so viruses, we usually think, are harmful to us. But the technology originated out of a virus that infects bacteria. And essentially, it has specific proteins and enzymes that are responsible for 
actually meeting up with the DNA of the virus and then changing that DNA, inactivating it in a way that it doesn't harm the bacteria. Hmm. So we have taken that technology uh, at the level of DNA and we have made it so that we can take both the protein, this enzyme called Cas9, and we can also take the antisense sequence and then we can actually inactivate or even use the um, excision repair technology to change the DNA so that we can take out a gene. Maybe it's defective or we can insert a gene. Uh, and so it's pretty exciting to us for scientists. I know as a person who did research with viruses in uh, graduate school, it was great to be able to mutate that virus and then keep it from replicating. Hmm. Uh, so much so that you felt a little bit empowered by your ability to do that with the technological strategies that we used. Uh, a good thing in science may be not such a good thing in the hands of individuals who are not as um, up to date on what its capabilities are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, even as you describe that, I've, I get this sense in me where I, or maybe it's just in my brain and I think, okay, it's almost like we have a little too much power. When we, when we take that sort of responsibility in our hands. And, and like you said, certain individuals, it, this sort of technology could definitely become dangerous. Am, am I right to, to population and, and to ourselves if we use it on ourselves? So what sort of um, ethical concerns might you have as, you know, these things are available to purchase online. I, I, I did some Google searches and was able to, to order them, and I saw that there in some articles that, uh, you know, the United States government is starting to make some laws on using, purchasing these sort of things within our country. So what are some ethical concerns you foresee uh, we might begin to, to come up against in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... When we think of not just CRISPR, but anything, um, it seems as though that the information we have is well ahead of the actual legislation hmm. that uh, is there to regulate these kind of things. And that, to me, is a little bit unsettling uh, because the sky is the limit these days. Um, I had access to viral DNA and the ability to manipulate it, uh, to mutate it. Um, and I had strict, strict, strict guidelines for how to do that, mm -hmm. you know? And now to be able to have this in the homes of individuals who are just curious, mm -hmm. um, it is not necessarily totally unsettling. Um, but for many of us, we want to be the first to do anything. Uh, for us as scientists, that's really the exciting part. I want to be the first to make this discovery. I mm -hmm. want to be the first. Uh, but um, having the ability to alter your DNA, your DNA is the code of life. It sets in motion all of the activities of every cell in your body. And so what really is scary is trying to incorporate foreign DNA into your own body means that 
you know it's going to get inside, but you don't know where it's going to go. Hmm. So we have some genes that are very um, important in process, and we have some genes that are non-essential. We don't know where these DNAs that are foreign are going to go. And that is actually the problem we have with viral DNA being incorporated into our bodies. So I would love to give you some exciting scenario that says, hey, this is um, this example is an example of why we don't want to use it. But I think generally speaking, the picture is we don't know where it will be inserted and what kind of genes will be produced from it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that totally. Uh, there is a quote I want to read for you. Uh, it's by Chip. It's from Chip Walter. He was on an interview on NPR, uh, and he he's written a book recently. And I want to try to find the title of that book real quick. It's called Immortality Inc. Uh, Renegade Science, Silicon Valley Billions, and the Quest to Live Forever. And he said this on his interview on NPR. It says technology is the driver of our age, whereas thousands of years ago it was religion. Uh, so I think we can we can include science in there into technology. So maybe science and technology are the drivers of our age. Um, so he, he believes that they may, that may not necessarily be true. Uh, you may not agree with him, but how how might we further how might further efforts in the biohacking community uh, affect everyday lives of Christians and church communities in the future? Uh, and what things do Christians and churches need to be aware of right now? Um, you know, is is t- science and technology going to reinvent how we um, have church or how we interact as humans or how we uh, understand our our meaning of life here on earth as as Christians? You know, I have thought about that. Um, I taught a class uh, at Regent University uh, a few years ago uh, called Foundations of Scientific Thought. And in that course, we are actually bridging uh, thinking about science, not in terms of just scientists, but in the worldview of Christians, uh, we usually say, oh, that's in the Bible. It's good. It's not in the Bible. It's bad. And so that course teaches us how to have conversations so that the two can come together. So that the church can say, hey, I understand a little bit more about what's going on in science. Mm. And scientists can say, hey, I am aware uh, of what the church is sort of leery about or has some concerns about. And when those conversations can come together, everybody benefits from it. Instead of being diametrically opposed, we are instead having conversations that both groups learn about and we're better for it. Uh, So with respect to Chip Walter and his quote um, about people living longer, three to 400 years, um, I think I can look at this from a scientific perspective and I can look at it from uh, the perspective of a Christian. Uh, With science, everybody wants to live longer. Uh, Everybody wants to live longer than they're going to live. Uh, And nobody knows how long we're going to (laughs) live except God. (laughs) So that's just the reality there. And so I think the question is not how long we're going to live, 
but what is the quality of life going to be? Uh, the word of God asks us to be good stewards of everything that we have, including our own selves. And when we look at our purpose, our purpose is to not only glorify God, uh, but to make him known to others. And in whatever vocation we are in, it's important for us uh, to be healthy um, and to uh, be able to do the most and best that we can do. And so uh, I don't think um, there is too much to be concerned about. Someone once said to me, if um, we are always concerned about the counterfeit, what's in the counterfeit, what does it look like, how is it manifested, uh, then we take our eye off the ball. But if we know, in fact, what the true thing is, instead of the counterfeit, we'll be able to recognize the counterfeit. Mm, So the thing in life is, I think, not that we're looking at how long we're going to live. Because if you live to be three or four hundred and at a hundred, you're decrepit, your health is poor, you uh, don't have the ability to do on your own, then you have two to 300 more years of living that way. But instead, if we have 120 years, say, as Moses had, then we can ask ourselves, how can we have the best life possible being good stewards of what he's given us? Uh, I'm excited about uh, what's happening with respect to people wanting to live longer, uh, but the quality of life Uh, Not just the outer man, but also the inner man, uh, the matters of the heart, the state of the heart means just as much, if not more. Hmm. That's really good. I, uh, I think... I think I maybe this is just me. Maybe I struggle with the idea of wanting to live forever. I was I was or maybe not forever, but even even to live to three hundred or four hundred years old. I was I was speaking with my senior pastor, uh, and and I was just saying, you know, I'm only in my twenties, and there are already things in this life that they make me just eager. To, to see my father, you know, not eager to die, but eager to uh, be done with this world and to cross over into paradise with the father. And so I, I just think maybe this is just me, but isn't there a part of us who should be ex- excited to to go to paradise and, and to be in the presence of the father? And, uh, you know, there was even a quote in, in the podcast that I listened to on, on NPR, and it said, you know, if 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 there was the option to live forever, I think everybody would take that that option. And I'm like, I would not. I you know I wouldn't take that option. I think a hundred years that's that's pushing it for me. So uh-huh. it, is it wrong for me to feel like that, or should I be on the side of science saying, you know, we need to to use what the Lord has given us to try to live longer? And and you know, you made a great point that we need to be good stewards of of our bodies. And so that does mean being healthier, eating healthier, um, having healthier diets, biohacking in the term of eating chicken instead of beef for lunch. Uh, that's definitely something we should do, and that may cause us to live longer. But is it is it wrong for me to say, you know, I don't want to? to live to be 300 or 400 years old. Uh, Is that wrong of me in your opinion? Certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, Glory to God that you want to be uh, with the Father. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I can say, honestly, when I first came to know the Lord in my youth, at 15 years old, I came to know the Lord. But in college, I think I was presented with this question. And I said, you know, I, there's so much I want to do, so many things I want to see. Um, and so I was not ready to go be with the Father. Uh, and then probably in my 30s, uh, in my 40s, I was raising my children. And as much as I love him, he loves me more, of course, but as much as I love him, I wasn't sure that I was still ready to go be with the Father. Mm. But I can understand your point with so many things happening in the world that we certainly do not have control over. Uh, we can be assured that God sees it and he is himself doing something about it. Uh, to answer the question, uh, is it wrong to feel that way? Certainly not. Um, I'm now in my 50s and I'm feeling like, Lord, I'm not quite ready to go yet, even though to be with him would be amazing. A thousand, beyond a thousand years, just praising him, oh, would be so wonderful. But I sense in this season of my life, he is saying, uh, that person over there needs me. Hmm. That person over there needs to hear about my son. That person over there needs hope. And so I think in my personal time in this life, uh, I'm trying to do all the biohacking I can <laughs> to make sure that I am fitter, you know, um, that I'm telling my uh, friends who are older like me, uh, here's a tip or trick so that you can be healthier. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, we have a work to do. We are his workmanship here on earth. And so um, I want to be with him, but I also want to do the work, which is to reconcile others to restore others in right relationship with him. Hmm. Now, your calling, that I want to be with the Father, that's even higher because you know what it means to have fellowship with him here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you are envisioning, hey, I want that fellowship forever with him. That's a great thing. Uh, and I commend you for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. As you were saying that, I, I maybe felt a little more ease, but I was reminded here at Grace River, our, our vision is to see every generation experience the transforming power of God in every area of their lives. And, mm. and just as you were saying that, I was like, oh man, Lord, what does every generation mean? Because you know, maybe that means he he wants us to, if we if we trust in those who are scientists like yourselves, who are who are scientists who seek the the will of God, and 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 by the grace of God, we do have the ability to, you know, I, I'm I'm a young man. There's there's so much more to happen in the science world and in technology, and and maybe when I'm your age, people will be living to 300 and 400 years old. But that just means that I'll have the opportunity to reach even more generations than I expect to reach now, uh, because that's what the Lord has called. It at least us here at Grace River do is, is to reach every generation from from cradle to grave, reach that generation for the Lord. Uh, thank you so much. I, I think that's just the perfect way to to end this conversation. I'm so grateful for the time we've been able to uh, spend together, and and I'm I've missed uh, just hearing you speak. And you're, you're so wise. You have so much wisdom to share, uh, and, and I miss our my biology class with you uh, back in in my undergraduate program. So thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, ma'am. Here are two things I took away from my conversation with Dr. Jervie. 
1. Our bodies are not our own. They are a gift from God that we are called to take good care of. And while we must, as Christians, be careful not to fall into the trap of humanism or viewing our physical bodies as more important than our spiritual selves, we must also be good stewards of what we have been given. And if that means that scientists, Christian scientists like Dr. Jervy, who are seeking the will of God first, find ways to help us live healthier, longer lives, then we need to jump on that. We need to affirm that. We need to treat our bodies like we would a car, changing out broken parts for better ones, giving it the right kind of fuel in order to optimize its power and ability, and taking good care of the outward appearance as well. However, we must hold firm to the image of God that is in each of us, and this probably means that merging ourselves with robots is out of the question. Sorry, Elon. And two, if our mission is to see lives transformed— If our mission is to see generations transformed, if our mission is to go to the ends of the earth and baptize, we are going to want as much time as we can have. None of us know the time that the Lord will call us home. And I'm certain that if we take care of our bodies and do begin to have the ability to live long lives like the men of old we read about in the Old Testament, the Lord will take care of us when he's ready. He will take us when he's ready. I have no doubt in his power to do that. And we may grow tired of this world, as I'm sure Christ did in the short time he walked upon it. But Christ came not to condemn us to death, but to give us life and fullness of life at that. Who are we to decide when we've had enough of this life? It seems like a reoccurring segment on this podcast, but I'd like to close with the lines from a country song. Kenny Chesney seems to have figured this all out when he wrote, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. It goes like this. Everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Next time you got the good Lord's ear, say I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here, don't you know that? Everybody wants to go to heaven, hallelujah, let me hear you shout. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. I don't know about you, but I think I need to remember that Christ died so that I don't have to. Christ died so that I can have fullness of life. Maybe not the type of fun that Kenny was having up in this song, but I think it's time we enjoy the life God has granted us. Let's all have a little fun. Let's praise God for Jesus, and let's live life full. I'm Nick Clay, and this is Culture and the Cross. Thank you again for joining us here on Culture and the Cross. Don't forget that Culture and the Cross is a part of the Grace River Podcast Network and a ministry of Grace River Church. If you'd like to join us online or in person for a service, we have services on Sunday at 10 a.m. Here at Grace River Church, our address is 5045 Indian River Road, Virginia Beach, Virginia. You can also watch online, like I said. You can go to graceriverva.com live to view our services there. Don't forget that the mission of Grace River Church is to see every generation experience the transforming power of God in every area of their lives. If you would, do me a favor and share this podcast with friends and family so we can see transformation take place in their lives. Have a good week. We'll see you next time.